Good morning, family. What a tremendous privilege it is for me to stand before you once again, and I'm so grateful for the Lord's blessings upon us, and uh, may I add my word to what uh, Sue uh, shared a moment ago, and that is our gratitude for the outpouring of love and encouragement and the gifts that have been shared with us uh, during this past month. And we're so grateful because we know that all that you have done, you've done it because you simply chose to do it. And we're grateful. Uh, you are such a blessing to us. You have been since we've become part of First Alliance. Uh, the outpouring of love has uh, started and, and it just has continued. It's just like somebody turned the faucet on and uh, just left it running. So we are grateful for the continuous outpouring of love uh, for uh, Joyce and myself. Today we're talking from James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and uh, I shall read from the New American Standard Version of our Bible uh, that passage. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have not left us without instructions as to how you want us to live in this world. We thank you, Lord, that you've already brought us into your family. And this you've done so by the blood of your son, Jesus, Lord, whom you sent to satisfy your own justice so that you might be free to forgive us of all of our sins without violating your own holiness. And now, O oh Lord, that we are your children, now that we are members of your family, it is our desire to live like that. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts today afresh and anew. 
Lord said, we might be mindful of that small part of our body called the tongue and how it is used. May, from this day forward, may our tongues, may my tongue, O God, be used for your glory. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I begin my talk today, I'm reminded of the words of A.W. Tozer, where it says, sound Bible exposition is an imperative must in the church of the living God. Without it, no church can be a New Testament church in any strict meaning of that term. But exposition may be carried on in such a way as to leave the hearers devoid of any true spiritual nourishment, whatever. For it is not mere words that nourish the soul, but God himself. And unless and until the hearers find God in personal experience, they're not the better for having heard the truth. There's a song that is taught to children that we adults should take heed. The first line of that song is actually the title, and the first stanza goes like this. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. There's a father up above looking down in tender love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. The third stanza says, Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. There's a father up above, looking down in tender love. Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. James, in the beginning of this chapter, says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. The text is not intended to discourage anyone from becoming a teacher. Rather, it is intended to demonstrate both the lofty dignity and the great responsibilities that accompany that work. These are not to be taken lightly. James is not teaching that God has two separate standards of holiness. He only has one. He is teaching that one should not presume to teach the precepts of God without endeavoring to live out the reality of the truths that are being taught. This is something for which the Pharisees were noted. The greater judgment comes into play when a teacher talks the talk without walking the walk. It is never simply do as I say without walking the way. There's a passage in Romans chapter 2, uh, Romans 2 verse 20 to 23 says this, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? 
You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through the breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? There's a man by the name of John Owen, and he said something that I just want to share with you very briefly. He said, no man preaches that sermon well to others that does not first preach it to his own heart. He who does not feed on and digest and thrive by what he prepares for his people, he may give them poison as far as he knows. For unless he finds the power of it in his own heart, he cannot have any ground of confidence that it will have power in the hearts of others. Be careful, little tongue, what you say. This applies not only to preachers, but also to anyone else who seeks to teach others. The best way to teach others is to talk little, pray much, and live holy. Let me say that again. The best way to teach others is to talk little, pray much, and live holy. One of the things that has made a great impression upon me is what the the Apostle Peter said that one of the greatest responsibilities of pastors and teachers is to be an example of what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. In all of our endeavors, even our eating and our drinking, Scripture teaches us that we are to be most concerned about glorifying God. James 3, 2 says this, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. This statement makes it clear that when it comes to falling short of God's standard, no one is exempt. No one is exempt. James is the brother of Jesus, and he's admitting, he's saying to them that we all stumble. We all stumble. Consider what he says in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. So this speaks volume to those who would be teachers. Please pay careful attention to what he says in that verse 2. He says, not only that we stumble, we stumble in many ways. But it also speaks to those who are learners. Teachers are not to be seen as perfect, but they should be seen as striving toward perfection. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the saints at Philippi, had it known that he had not become perfect within of himself, but that he was striving for it. He was continually striving toward that perfection. He was continually striving to reach the level of perfection. And we know that in this life, we will never come to that complete, absolute perfection that only happens when the Lord takes us out of this world. But we ought to be learning. We ought to be striving. You know, saints are not to be seen as sinless individuals. But as we live in this life, we should be seen as living to sin less and less and less. We all fall short of God's holy standard. There's no one exempt. 
And so James is letting it be known that we all stumble in many ways. Now, one does not need to be a scholar to understand that the writer is not referring to, as a moment ago, sinless perfection. For Jesus Christ is the only one who is absolutely perfect. As a matter of fact, the very reason he came is because we are sinners. And we needed the grace of God. And we still need the grace of God. I'm looking forward to that day when the Lord takes me out of this world. I'm looking forward to the day that I will no longer have temptation before me. I'm looking forward to the day where there will no longer be temptation from within me. Oh, did I say that? Um, can we keep that between us kids? The reality is that we all stumble, every one of us. And so I do not stand before you as one who has arrived, but I'm striving. The work of bridling the tongue is a tremendous work of growing in the grace in which we stand. Proverbs 13, 3 says, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. In this, we find great support for the exhortation that everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Great things are controlled by small things. Consider the horses and the ships uh, that the Apostle James talks about. Horses are controlled by small bits put into their mouths. Ships are controlled with a very small rudder. And so James says in verse 5 and 6, it says, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest it is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. He says it is a world of iniquity. World primarily means order and is used to refer to the world or universe as an orderly system. And hence, a world of iniquity refers to an organism that contains within itself all the essence of evil from which the whole man is saturated. Last month, month I, along with many of you, had the privilege of attending a gathering at Bruce's place. And I observed a number of small fire pits. But I also noticed that the only way the fires were to continue to burn was that someone needed to keep adding wood to the fire. Great fires, like forest fires, like those we've seen in the western part of our country that destroy hundreds of thousands of acres of valuable timber and homes and businesses usually began with just a small spark. Consider the Chicago fire of October 8th, 1871. Many of you have read that, read about that. That fire left more than 100,000 people homeless. It destroyed over 17,000 buildings, and it resulted in the deaths of 300 people. Although the exact cause of the Chicago fire has never been determined, legend holds that it began 
because a cow kicked over a lantern in a barn. Great fires start from small things. But mind you, there are certain conditions that are needed in order for fires to spread, regardless of the cause of that fire. Dry weather and an abundance of wooden buildings, streets, and sidewalks made Chicago vulnerable to that great fire. Proverbs 26.20 says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. Be careful, little tongue, but also be careful, little ears, what you hear. Just because a brother or sister or a politician speaks words of malice doesn't mean that they have to spread. When I was a child, I, I grew up repeating these words that somehow I knew were not true. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Oh. Huh? Sticks and stones can break bones and words can destroy. King David said in Psalm 39, 1, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. Proverbs 18, 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Some years ago, I stumbled upon an article written by a man by the name of Richard Kresher, and I hope I didn't butcher his name. It's spelled K-R-E-J-C-I-R. And uh, the title of his, is his article was, Why Churches Fail. And I have just a little bit of, of a quote from that article. He says, in my first doctoral dissertation on why churches fail, I tracked over 100,000 churches for over 10 years. He said, the number one reason why people stop coming to any church, your church, he puts in parentheses, was reported by over 91% people of the people citing the significant factor or main reason being conflict and gossip. May I suggest that the number one reason that conflict and gossip flourish in a church is because we have a tendency to forget why we exist and for whom we exist. I believe it was Oswald Chambers who said, Jesus never called us to be committed to a cause. He calls us to be devoted to him. Pastor Mike recently preached on the sermon who are you? We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. Pastor Kirk preached on, why are you here? When a church forgets who we are and why we're here, then things begin to go astray. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says this, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, that is proud, look. A lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies. 
and one who spreads strife among brethren. Words can destroy, but words can also heal. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. You know, it's so easy when somebody says something that hurts our feelings to begin to carry around that hurt. I'm so glad the Lord calls us to himself, calls us to remember that he has not dealt with me according to what my sins deserve, but according to the greatness of his loving kindness, he has has and continues to deal with me. And you hear me say so often when people ask me, how am I doing? Uh, My immediate response is, I'm doing better than I deserve. And somebody said, well, you know, can't you say something different? I said, yeah, I'm doing far better than I deserve. When I consider the mercies that God has shown me, when I consider the grace of which I'm being showered every day, wow. Now, I have to, I didn't time myself. I bring my phone up here so I could time myself and I didn't turn it on. So I, so I, but I promise you, I will not be here be, uh, until 2 o'clock. But I just want to share one thing with you. You know, and this is not in my notes, so I'm not going to charge you for it. There was a time when my wife and I have been married for 52 years. <laughs> Actually, 52 years, 6 months, and... 27 days. (laughs) But there was a time in my life when I began to focus on my wife's perceived faults. And notice I said perceived faults. It reached a point even that I began to complain to God until one day as I was talking to God, I could just sense God saying back to me, and as if he had a great big book thumbing the pages, and he says, Uh, so your wife has issues. Tell me about it, Donald. And flipping the pages. And I could just sense all of those pages were my faults. Now, here's a, now, that's just an illustration because God does not keep a record of my sins. Aren't you glad about that? But when God spoke to my heart, he reminded me of how he had dealt with me how merciful he had been to me, how gracious he had been to me. And not only that, the promise that I made to her and to him to love her all the days of our lives. And I'll tell you what, that time with the Lord broke me from complaining about my wife's perceived faults. Because many of what I perceived to be false were not real faults. They were simply figments of my imagination. But they were getting the better of me. 
And what I did, I went to her and I said, I want to confess to you the thoughts that I've been having and I want to ask you to forgive me. And I want to promise you that from this day forward, you will never have to wonder about my love for you. Ladies and gentlemen, whether or not you know it, we are all family, and we are supposed to be in a love relationship with one another. Maybe not to the degree that I have with my wife. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. There needs to be an examination of my tongue. Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. And so I have to ask myself, what governs my conversations? What percentage of my conversations are used to speak blessings regarding my fellow believers? How much time do I spend speaking disapproval of someone, either explicitly or implicitly? How much time do I spend building someone up in the ears and in the hearts of those who listen to me? How much time do I spend tearing down what the Lord has built up? How much of what I say actually undermines the leadership of my church and therefore undermines the strength of the body? How many people would attend my church because of the words that come from my mouth from Sunday afternoon until Saturday night? I have to examine my tongue to be very intentional about how I use my tongue. Whether I'm in a so-called casual conversation or if I, whether I'm standing before you speaking from the word of God. I have to be intentional about the use of my tongue. When I think about my tongue, I have to be careful that I do not go to one of either two extremes. That is, uh, sometimes that in, in churches, we have to be careful that we do not de demonize our faith community. For we all stumble. On the other hand, we must be just as careful to not make our church into an idol. What am I saying about that? When we come, when we come together, we're coming together not because we have wonderful ministries here, but we do, and we do. When we invite people to come, it should not be the sole reason because we have a wonderful pastor and we do. When we're inviting people to come, it should not be because we have an amazing staff, and we do. It should not be because you have a couple of incredible associate pastors. <laughs> I, I said to my wife, if they don't get the human, that we're in trouble. We are in trouble. <laughs> uh, Please know that I am not caught up in myself. <laughs> but it should all be because we are all about Jesus. It should not be about standing and saluting the flag, nor should it be about bending the knee, but about the cross of Jesus Christ where he shed his blood for our redemption. Politics about masks, vaccines, 
political parties have no place within the body of Christ. When these things divide us, it is because we have left our first love, which is Jesus, and have turned to idols. Nature abhors a vacuum. Christ is to fill our lives and where Christ ceases to be the center of our existence as a body here. Something else will take its place, will take his place. It may even be things considered to be noble within and of themselves, such as ministering to the homeless or visiting the sick and, and shut in. But if we are not abiding in the vine, which is Christ, then our work gets us nowhere. Paul said to the saints at Ephesus in Ephesians 4, 1, 2, 3, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent, being diligent, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And ladies and gentlemen, the true measure of unity is how we speak, act, and show mercy and love. And as I come to a close, may I suggest that in addition to whatever Bible reading, text you're reading, that you would consider two passages of Scripture on a daily basis. The first one is 1 Corinthians 13. Reading it at a moderate place, uh, pace, I should say, it takes less than two minutes to read that chapter. In all the good works we do, if we're not grounded in love for Jesus and love for those we serve as well as toward our entire faith community, then we are like a house full of pianos all playing the same music but are irritating to the ears of the hearers because the pianos are out of tune with each other. And the best way to get in unity one with another is not to try to get in unity with one another. Sounds like I just did some double talk, right? The best way to get into unity with one another is to focus entirely on the Lord Jesus Christ. For if the pianos want to be tuned one to another, each of those keys must be tuned to a single tuning fork. And that is the only way that you can guarantee that those pianos are going to be in tuned one to another. For if you try to tune one piano to another, if that piano is out of tune, then you're going to have two pianos that are simply out of tune. But Jesus is our tuning fork. And if we're walking in unity with him, then we will be in unity one with another. Please understand that uniformity does not equal unity. The picture you just see there, uniformity, and it's beautiful, but there's no unity there. Secondly, because the words of our mouths are merely a reflection of the content of our hearts, may I suggest that we all should be as the psalmist David who prayed this in Psalm 1914. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock 
and my Redeemer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. When we seek God's approval on everything we do and everything we say, then we seek to walk in obedience to him. And the world will take notice and we will be as Jesus prayed to the Father, that they be one so that the world may believe that you, Father, as Jesus prayed, sent me. Will you pray with me?